Hello, I'm CM Conway, the filmmaker of the witty and poignant indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, now on Prime Video, and funnyfailurefilm.com. On this now monthly podcast, we celebrate funny flubs, bodacious blunders, and miraculous missteps that happen to us as artists. So hone your funny bone and let's get started. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. Welcome to the show, inspired by our bootstrapped indie, How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood, a female-led film that is a champion of equity, diversity, and inclusion, and the hardworking, bold artists trying to make their dreams come true in the entertainment industry. With all the rosy tales about Hollywood, the film exposes its inner secrets and the pitfalls, pratfalls, and hunks to avoid that nobody talks about. That's where the real gold is buried in Tinseltown. Time to unearth the treasure. The lead characters and best friends Ellie and Ben also find out how important friends are in our lives. And they turn the town on its ear and look failure dead in the eye and laugh. And that's what we do on this show. So if you're an artist and you've had a mishap that's happened in your creative journey and you'd like to share it on the show, please visit funnyfailurefilm.com and click on share your story. Today's story is an edited excerpt of chapters from my autobiography by Samuel Clemens. Most of you might recognize as the famous writer Mark Twain. This work was published in 1906. Mark Twain was a controversial person, critic, and prolific writer. His classical works are a reflection of his own beliefs and those of his time. A host of movies have also been made about his life and his fictional novels. His story is performed by John Greenman and is a LibriVox recording in the public domain. I will begin with a note upon the dedication. I wrote the book in the months of March and April 1868 in San Francisco. It was published in August 1869. Three years afterward, Mr. Goodman of Virginia City, Nevada, on whose newspaper I had served ten years before, came east, and we were walking down Broadway one day when he said, How did you come to steal Oliver Wendell Holmes' dedication and put it in your book? I made a careless and inconsequential answer, for I supposed he was joking. But he assured me that he was in earnest. He said, I'm not discussing the question of whether you stole it or didn't, for that is a question that can be settled in the first bookstore we come to. I am only asking you how you came to steal it, for that is where my curiosity is focalized. I couldn't accommodate him with this information, as I hadn't it in stock. I could have made oath that I had not stolen anything, therefore my vanity was not hurt, nor my spirit troubled. At bottom I supposed that he had mistaken another book for mine, and was now getting himself into an untenable place, and preparing sorrow for himself, and triumph for me. We entered a bookstore, and he asked for The Innocents Abroad, and for the dainty little blue and gold edition of Dr. Oliver Wendell Holmes' poems. He opened the books, exposed their dedications, and said, Read them. It is plain that the author of the second one stole the first one, isn't it? 
I was very much ashamed and unspeakably astonished. We continued our walk, but I was not able to throw any gleam of light upon that original question of his. I could not remember ever having seen Dr. Holmes' dedication. I knew the poems, but the dedication was new to me. I did not get hold of the key to that secret until months afterward. Then it came in a curious way, and yet it was a natural way. For the natural way provided by nature and the construction of the human mind for the discovery of a forgotten event is to employ another forgotten event for its resurrection. I received a letter from the Reverend Dr. Rising, who had been rector of the Episcopal Church in Virginia City in my time, in which letter Dr. Rising made reference to certain things which had happened to us in the Sandwich Islands six years before. Among things he made casual mention of the Honolulu Hotel's literature. At first I did not see the bearing of the remark. It called nothing to my mind. But presently it did, with a flash. There was but one book in Mr. Kirchhoff's hotel, and that was the first volume of Dr. Holmes' Blue and Gold series. I had had a fortnight's chance to get well acquainted with its contents, for I had ridden around the big island, Hawaii, on horseback, and had brought back so many saddle-boils that if there had been a duty on them it would have bankrupted me to pay it. They kept me in my room unclosed and in persistent pain for two weeks, with no company but cigars and the little volume of poems. Of course, I read them almost constantly. I read them from beginning to end, then read them backwards, then began in the middle and read them both ways then read them wrong end first and upside down. In a word, I read the book to rags, and was infinitely grateful to the hand that wrote it. Here we have an exhibition of what repetition can do, when persisted in daily and hourly over a considerable stretch of time, where one is merely reading for entertainment, without thought or intention of preserving in the memory that which is read. It is a process which, in the course of years, dries all the juice out of a familiar verse of Scripture, leaving nothing but a sapless husk behind. In that case you at least know the origin of the husk, but in the case in point I apparently preserved the husk, but presently forgot whence it came. It lay lost in some dim corner of my memory a year or two, then came forward when I needed a dedication, and was promptly mistaken by me as a child of my own happy fancy. I was new, I was ignorant, the mysteries of the human mind were a sealed book to me as yet, and I stupidly looked upon myself as a tough and unforgivable criminal. I wrote to Dr. Holmes and told him the whole disgraceful affair, implored him in impassioned language to believe that I had never intended to commit this crime, and was unaware that I had committed it until I was confronted with the awful evidence. I have lost his answer, I could better have afforded to lose an uncle. But that letter was beyond price, beyond uncledom, and unsparable. In it Dr. Holmes laughed the kindest and healingest laugh over the whole matter, and at considerable length and in happy phrase assured me that there was no crime in unconscious plagiarism, that I committed it every day, that he committed it every day, that every man alive on earth who writes or speaks commits it every day, and not merely once or twice, but every time he opens his mouth. That all our phrasings are spiritualized shadows, cast multitudinously from our readings. 
that no happy phrase of ours is ever quite original with us. There is nothing of our own in it except some slight change born of our temperament, character, environment, teachings, and associations. That this slight change differentiates it from another man's manner of saying it, stamps it with our special style, and makes it our own for the time being. All the rest of it being old, moldy, antique, and smelling of the breath of a thousand generations of them that have passed it over their teeth before. This is an intimate story into the haughtiness and insecurities of a famous writer, especially in social circles. His experiences are both humorous and ridiculous, perhaps intentionally so. Many of Mark Twain's writings are considered classics, and others remain quite controversial, including negative stereotypes. But nonetheless, his works have impacted our society. This makes his revealing glimpse into his own personality and personal failings something we can learn from. But even famous writers fall on their face now and then. Thank you for joining us in the How to Successfully Fail in Hollywood podcast. Copyright by Showstoppers and FunnyFailureFilm.com Intro and outro song, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star by David Mumford. Until next time, remember, mistakes makes art more interesting.